1: Something to note, all myths have many versions and variations. For this episode, we've selected those we felt are the most dramatic and entertaining because mythology comes from oral tradition. There's a wide variety across sources. Our myths may not always be the version you're familiar with, but we hope you'll enjoy them. The great hall of the palace at Ithaca was filled with rowdy men, as it always was. They packed the fire-lit halls with their raucous, drunken antics. Telemachus hated the lot of them, these suitors who were anything but suitable, desperate to marry his mother, Penelope, and claim his father's throne as their own. They sat around all day waiting for her to choose one of them, as if they could ever take her husband's place. The rightful prince of Ithaca knew that not one of these boastful Cretans would be so bold if his father were here. Of course, if his father were here, they wouldn't be in this situation. Seventeen years, gone. As he did most nights, Telemachus found himself longing for the presence of a man he'd never really known— He'd been just an infant when his father had reluctantly gone off to fight in the Trojan War. A crash and a spill from nearby, Telemachus winced as one of his uninvited guests knocked over an entire vase of wine, staining the gnarled floor with crimson liquid. The servants Telemachus's servants, his mother's servants, his father's servants— made haste to replace the man's wine and see to his every need. Telemachus had had enough. He had forfeited his duties as the host of these men long ago, and they had long since stopped feigning outrage when he broke decorum. They hollered and jeered at him as he exited the hall and made for the balcony to look out onto the sleeping island kingdom. Seventeen years... The Trojan War had lasted for only ten. Every great Greek hero who had not died in the conflict had returned home. Every hero, except for one. Telemachus looked up at the clear night sky and whispered the same question he'd been asking the gods since he had first learned to speak. Where is Odysseus? Welcome to Mythology, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we present dramatic stories from ancient mythology and explore their origins. I'm your host and narrator, Vanessa Richardson. This is our first episode on the ancient Greek hero Odysseus and his adventures as told in the epic poem The Odyssey. Over the next four episodes, we'll break down this epic journey of Odysseus as he fights to return home after fighting in the Trojan War. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. You can find all previous episodes of Mythology, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today, the Odyssey is considered to be both one of the greatest works of classic literature and one of the greatest fictional stories in the entire Western canon. It is one of the oldest surviving works of Western literature, following the epic poem, The Iliad. Both works are attributed to the poet Homer, who lived around the 8th century BCE. The Odyssey is a sequel to The Iliad, which chronicled the final days of the ten-year-long Trojan War. The Odyssey is primarily the story of the Greek hero Odysseus and his 10-year-long journey back to his home island of Ithaca. Cursed by Poseidon, god of the sea, Odysseus and his crew were subjected to a number of momentous misadventures across the islands of Greece as they desperately tried to return home. But while the Odyssey is firmly Odysseus's tale, it does frame his personal story in the broader context of the Greek heroes. The poem is really a series of stories within stories, as the various characters recount their own adventures to others. Beyond its significant historical value, the Odyssey stays relevant today as a template for the hero's journey and its vivid themes of loss, faith, and loyalty. The story begins not with Odysseus, however, but with his son, Telemachus. Ithaca had not fared well since its king had gone off to war. When they had received word that the war had ended, Penelope, Telemachus, and the people of Ithaca had eagerly waited for Odysseus and the rest of his men to return, but... As the days turned to months, and the months turned to years, no ships appeared on the horizon. Soon it became an open secret that Odysseus must have perished at sea, or otherwise had decided to abandon his wife and his crown, and not return to his homeland. Penelope was still young and of childbearing age, and before long the young men of Ithaca the sons of those who had set off with Odysseus, began pestering her for her hand in marriage. Suitors arrived on the island to present themselves as potential husbands, but Penelope remained convinced that Odysseus had not died, nor had he willingly abandoned his marital bed. She rejected the suitors' advances. In response, they took up residence in the halls of Ithaca, feeding on Odysseus' livestock and gorging themselves on his wine. Telemachus hated these intruders in his home, who so brazenly lusted after his mother. But there was little he could do.
2: I'm not a man in their eyes, mother. I didn't have a father to show me how to act, and they will always consider me a child because of it.
0: Maybe they'd respect you more if you exercised your right as the ruler of this island. You have yet to sit in your father's chair and issue orders as he did.
2: I don't know. If I do that, it's like I'm admitting to myself that he's truly
0: gone. And what if the men all laugh at me? You shouldn't worry yourself so much about what they think. You are the son of Odysseus. The best of these suitors isn't fit to lick your sandals. But how can I be proud of a man I've never known? He- He Only went to war for your sake. He tried to get out of it, you know. I know. When Menelaus and the Greeks came to recruit him, he pretended to be insane.
2: I know. You've told me.
0: He salted the field and hitched his plow to a donkey. But when one of Menelaus's men took you, small and helpless as you were, and set you in front of the donkey, he revealed his sanity by pulling the plow out of the way.
2: I know all of this. You've told me that story before.
0: Clearly you need to hear it again. Whatever angst you're feeling now, it can't be a fraction of what your father is going through.
2: If he's even still alive.
0: Oh, he's alive. The gods would send a sign if he had died.
1: Telemachus considered his mother's words as he set off for the beach. He enjoyed his nightly strolls away from the chaos of the palace and the crowd of suitors who never seemed to leave him be. After walking just a short way, he came to realize that he wasn't alone. When he turned around, he found himself facing Mentes, an older warrior who had been a friend of Odysseus. Despite Mentes' age, he stood up straight and spoke with a booming voice. Telemachus often suspected that there was more to this man than met the eye. His instincts were correct. Athena, goddess of war and wisdom, who favored Odysseus, had rallied the gods to her cause. She wanted to do whatever she could to bring Odysseus home, and so she came to Ithaca, in disguise, to spur his son to action. Telemachus listened intently as Athena, disguised as Mentes, told him not to wallow. Odysseus may still yet be alive, Though he could be in peril, she urged him not to wait idly on Ithaca. Rather, he should sail to Pylos, and then to Sparta, and speak with the kings Nestor and Menelaus. These men had fought by Odysseus's side in the Trojan War, and they may have clues as to his whereabouts. With that, Athena shed her disguise, transformed into a bird, and flew away." Telemachus was inspired and reinvigorated by the divine encounter. He returned to the palace to find his mother in a fit of distress. The palace bard was in the midst of a particularly troubling song about the Greek hero's return from Troy.
0: Enough of that dreadful noise. I'm sad thinking about my lost husband without you singing about him. I command you, play something else.
2: Mother, let him sing. He honors those who fought alongside father. See it as a sign of hope that Odysseus
0: may yet return. Well, it seems your spirits have lifted.
1: What brought this on? A sign from the gods. The show of authority was a welcome sight to his allies in the court. Telemachus had, up to that point, been reluctant to exercise his right to issue commands as the head of the household. But the prince slept fitfully that night as he considered what Athena had told him. Could his father really still be alive? Could the answers he sought be in Pylos or Sparta, as the disguised goddess had prophesied? The very next day, Telemachus called on the members of his court to assemble and discuss what was to be done about the intruding suitors and the possibility of Odysseus' return. It was a momentous day in which Telemachus took his father's seat at the court of Ithaca. An assembly of this kind had not been called since Odysseus had first left the island. The issues at hand were known to all. Odysseus had not returned, though the gods had granted no sign to confirm his death. Penelope was beset by suitors, all of whom felt entitled to her lands and marriage bed, but none of whom would take the proper course of journeying to Sparta and asking Icarius, her father, for her hand in marriage, as Odysseus had done years before. In their minds, she was once married and once paid for, and they did not need to take such action. As Telemachus expressed his frustration at his current predicaments, Antinous, one of the suitors who had appeared at the assembly, spoke out against Penelope and the slights he claimed she had committed. He referenced a recent trick in which Penelope told the suitors she would pick a new husband just as soon as she finished weaving a burial shroud to honor Odysseus. But every night, she undid the threads so that the shroud remained unfinished." The other suitors muttered an agreement as Antinous asserted that Penelope should be sent back to her father so that he may choose a new husband for her. Telemachus did not take this rash assertion lightly.
2: I will not send my mother away from her home. If any of you were suitable to marry Penelope, the gods would have sent a sign. If you speak so brazenly against my mother again, they will be the last words uttered by your feeble lips."
1: Tensions were rising, but then, with a signature crack of thunder, the sky tore apart as two eagles began to fight one another above the assembly. At the site, Halitherses, an elder of Ithaca, who knew more about birds than anyone on the island, declared the arrival of eagles as what they were, an omen from Zeus, a sign that Odysseus' return was imminent. And so, Telemachus made his plan known. He would follow the gods' advice and journey to Pylos, then to Sparta, and try to find word of what had truly happened to his father. The suitors objected to his course of action. They asserted that he would gather an army in Sparta and return to kill them all. Or worse, he would die at sea, and they would have to do the work of dividing up his possessions, which apparently would be just too much of an inconvenience. But Telemachus paid them no mind as he retired to his chamber. That night, in secret, he prepared for his journey and departed. He told no one in his palace that he was leaving, save for his wise elder nurse, Eurycleia, He knew his mother would fret at his departure, and he hoped that by leaving in secret, it would spare them both the pain of a drawn-out goodbye. Furthermore, he did not know what the suitors planned for him, or even if they would try to use force to stop him. But Telemachus knew that if he stayed on Ithaca, he would lose any chance he had of finding his father. As Telemachus set out for the ship he'd prepared, Eurycleia warned him to avoid the open ocean. Odysseus had sailed into the open ocean, and now he was lost. But Telemachus assured her that he knew he walked in step with the plans of the gods. They would protect him. He would find his father or die trying. Coming up, we'll cover Telemachus' search for answers. Now back to the story. Following the advice of the goddess Athena, Telemachus set out in secret from Ithaca and made for Pylos, the home of Nestor, who had fought alongside Odysseus in the Trojan War. He reached the island to witness quite a sight. Scores of bulls lined up for the slaughter, preparing to be sacrificed to the god Poseidon, Telemachus was more than intimidated by the act, and Athena thought it best to keep it from him that it was, in fact, Poseidon who had been behind Odysseus's long stay away from his home. As he passed the beach and sought the leader of the island, Telemachus found himself stricken with self-doubt. He had never been beyond Ithaca before. He was technically the king of that island, but because he had grown up without a father, He didn't know how to act in front of another king. But there was little time for him to worry, as he soon found himself face to face with a tall, wizened-looking man who could only be Nestor.
3: I do not recognize you or your ship. These waters have been fraught with danger and monsters these past few years. Name yourself and be quick about it.
2: I am Telemachus. Son of Odysseus, and I come to you, Nestor of Pylos, in need of guidance. Word has spread about the fate of those disparate Greeks who took the long way home from Troy, and those who met their permanent fate before that city's walls. But in all of those stories, there is no account of my father. I beg you, tell me anything you may know about the fate of Odysseus.
3: Hmm, yes. I do indeed see the spark of Odysseus in you, boy. Though he was a man and you seemed to barely be sprouting your first beard, your father was a great warrior and an even greater man. Come, I shall be honored to host you in my hall as I would hope to host him some day.
1: And so Nestor hosted Odysseus's son in his hall, serving him wine and food and reminiscing about the more active days of his youth, from Nestor, Telemachus learned insight into what had really happened on the shores of Troy during those ten years of war.
3: We spent most of those years trying to devise every which way to breach the Trojan defenses and take the city. Nine years we made sacrifices to the gods, to Zeus himself, asking for his guidance and how to best spend our energy. But Zeus did not answer our prayers, and the Trojans beat us back every time. Not even the mighty Achilles could lead us to victory. When we finally breached the city's walls, well, it was a bloodbath. I heard that you sacked the city. Aye, we razed the whole thing to the ground. Spilled every drop of Trojan blood we could find. And when it was all done, the Greeks learned the value of an enemy. Even after the enemy was extinguished? Well, we spent ten years united against a common foe. None of us liked each other particularly, and a lot of us had scores to settle with one another. But we set that all aside to help Menelaus take Troy and reclaim Helen. Once that was done, old rivalries started to resurface. But
2: I was of the belief the Greek kings were all on the same side. Aye, lad. But
3: old rivalries die hard. We were there for glory and for duty, not for loyalty. And Zeus, well... His temper can be as fickle as the wind. Soon after Troy had fallen, he conspired to make life hard for those Greeks that remained. Zeus, he must have had a hand in the Greeks' victory, else they would be laid to waste. Strange that he would turn on them so suddenly. All things divine are strange, boy. They do things beyond mortal understanding. For reverence, for payment, for sacrifice. It would seem that Zeus felt we Greeks were a little too quick to revel in our victory not quick enough to thank him for his contribution. Of course, that was the subject of the very fight that caused the rift between our leaders, Menelaus and Agamemnon. Thinking back, maybe it was Zeus that pitted them against each other. Who can know the minds of the gods? But Menelaus made haste to return to his homeland as soon as possible. And Agamemnon longed to stay, to make sacrifices to the gods in the hopes that they may forgive his many transgressions over the course of the war and bless him with a safe journey home. Neither brother would yield. The rift widened. I went with Menelaus and his men. Agamemnon stayed behind. Odysseus stayed with him. That was the last time I saw your father. But surely a man as wise and learned as you has some idea as to what happened to him. You are kind to flatter me so, and it is certainly becoming of a young king such as yourself. But I'm afraid I cannot help you here. I can be sure that Odysseus did
1: not accompany Agamemnon when he finally left. Nestor went on to recount Agamemnon's ultimate fate. When the great king returned home, he found that his cousin, Aegisthus, had bedded his wife, Clytemnestra, and taken his throne. Nestor warned the young prince that Agamemnon met his fate because he relied on his status and titles to carry the weight of his leadership. Loyalty was earned. It took years of cultivation and a deeply embedded sense of honor. The fact that Penelope had remained resistant and faithful for nearly two decades was an indication of the great respect the boy's father commanded. Odysseus, Nestor said with determination, is a worthy man and may yet earn the reunion that is surely on the horizon. And so Telemachus stayed the night in Nestor's palace. At Athena's urging, he kept a watchful eye on the man. Telemachus had missed out on much by not having a father in his life to show him the ways a king must act. There was much to be learned. When they had rested, Nestor urged Telemachus to make way for Sparta. For perhaps Menelaus had more news about what had happened to Odysseus. Telemachus heeded his words, for he remembered what Athena had told him. And so, Telemachus set out once more in search of word of his father. With Athena flying behind in the form of a protective bird, the ship landed on the shores of Sparta, which was in the midst of some great celebration. As luck would have it, the king Menelaus and his wife, Helen, were hosting a grand feast in celebration of the marriages of their son and daughter. It was a merry setting, and Telemachus was relieved to come across the home of yet another veteran of the Trojan War. Like Nestor, Menelaus had managed to return to his homeland and resume a peaceful life. If one as fiery and as stalwart as Menelaus could find such peace, then perhaps there was hope for Odysseus yet. Ha
4: ha! And who are you that's come to my palace on this joyous day? I— Wait! You have a familiar air about you. Come, sit, eat. And when we have satisfied our hunger, we shall find out who you are.
1: So Telemachus sat at Menelaus' table, beside his wife, the fabled Helen, once of Troy, and once again of Sparta, the most beautiful mortal woman in all of Greece, whose abduction had led to the Ten-Year War.
4: You have a stately look about you. Good posture, a little thin for my liking. But there's something regal in the way you stand. Well... Being a king isn't all it's cracked up to be, you know. I have days where I would trade all the gold I have to get my brother back, or any of the brave warriors
1: whom I led to their deaths at Troy. And so Menelaus drunkenly ranted about stories of war, great victories, demoralizing defeats, men lost, and men proving their heroics. Telemachus listened for a time... But the words started to blend together, and his eyes glazed at the raucous dining hall in front of him. Our backs to the damned ocean.
4: They were picking us off like flies hiding behind the cowardly walls of their city. We needed to get inside somehow. It was your father who came up with the answer. Your father who won us the war. My father? How did you- Boy, you could tell Odysseus's blood runs through you the moment you landed on the shore. You have that same damned honorable gait. I thought you were... A drunk? An ignorant king drowning himself in vice? Aye, I might be those things, boy. But I know how to recognize a man of import. And Odysseus was the best of a lot of great men. When we were at our most desperate, he came up with the brilliant plan. It was a horse of all things. A damned wooden horse that won us the war.
1: So Menelaus told the fantastic story of the Trojan horse and all of Odysseus's greatest triumphs. Telemachus, upon hearing this great king of men extol the virtues of his father, found himself overwhelmed with emotion. But even then, he could not forget the pangs suffered in his homeland.
2: I'm afraid all the great achievements of my father will be for naught. His halls are filled with men who lust after his throne and chase my mother as though she were some object of power.
4: Scum, all of them. Were it in my house, I would slaughter the whole lot. But my days of fighting are done. I grew weary during the ten years of war at Troy. Though in the end, it was worth it, for I retrieved my beloved Helen. You should have faith, young prince. Many other Greeks encountered difficulties on the return journey and your father may yet be alive.
1: Menelaus launched into another tale, one of his long-winded return to Sparta from Troy. It would seem that Agamemnon had been right to wait and make sacrifices to the gods. Menelaus and his surviving Spartans found themselves blown off course as a punishment. They were stranded in Egypt, lost in the desert, and it was only through providence and the mercy of the gods that they were able to find the shape-shifting Proteus, capture him, and force him to show them the way home.
4: It was Proteus who first told me of my brother's fate. What's more, he let slip this. Odysseus is indeed alive. I've always hoped, but truly? Yes, boy, your father lives. He's being held captive by the nymph Calypso, who fancies him her husband and will not let him leave her island.
1: And with that story, it would seem, Menelaus had given Telemachus the spark of hope that he had been seeking, the hope that had long eluded him. Armed with this knowledge, Telemachus prepared to return home and face his mother's suitors, knowing that her husband, his father, was alive. But Odysseus's homecoming was not imminent and all was not well in Ithaca. Penelope's unwelcome suitors grew more and more bold with Telemachus's absence. By sheer chance, Penelope overheard their scheme to wait on the beach for Telemachus to return so that they could cut him down and claim Ithaca for their own.
0: <laughs> Athena, wisest of the gods, my husband Always sacrifice to you the most. My family is gone, and their enemies conspire against them. Please protect them from
1: all who would do them harm. In that moment, Athena appeared before Penelope, disguised as her sister, Iphthemi. The goddess assured Penelope that all would be well. And while Penelope did not know she was speaking to Athena herself, She felt some semblance of comfort in her words, but the saga was far from over, and even though Penelope was able to rest easy, she could not know the trials ahead that her husband and son had yet to face. Next, we finally find Odysseus. Now back to the story. Telemachus had done as Athena had commanded. He had traveled to Pylos and Sparta and heard the stories of Nestor and Menelaus. In doing so, he found the hope he'd been seeking, confirmation that his father was alive. As Menelaus had said, Odysseus was imprisoned on an island with Calypso, the goddess who had claimed him as her lover. By this point, Odysseus was the last man alive, of all those young Ithacans who had sailed to Troy. Every day, Calypso made advances toward him, offering him immortality in exchange for his submission. And every day, he scorned her advances, choosing instead to mourn on the barren shores of the island and lament his lost men and his home, wife, and child, which he feared he would never see again. Athena's machinations had led Telemachus to the knowledge that his father lived. Now, she needed to turn her attention to helping Odysseus escape from the island. And so, she issued a call to action to her fellow gods. She appeared before them, all of them, save for Poseidon, who was in a distant land receiving a sacrifice. The goddess told the Olympians that Odysseus was wise, he was brave. He was the mortal that the gods respected the most. He had been kind and loyal to his family and to his people, and yet he had been allowed to suffer for years when all he wanted to do was go home. Were his qualities not ones that should be rewarded? What message were they sending to the other mortals if they continued to punish him despite all he had done? Zeus was moved by Athena's words. With Poseidon absent from the gathering, there were no other gods who would speak in strong support of continuing Odysseus's suffering. And so Zeus ordered his son Hermes, the messenger god, to make his way to Calypso's island and order her to release Odysseus. Hermes did as instructed and shot away from the heights of Mount Olympus. Zeus then urged Athena to continue on her own path keeping watch over Telemachus and protecting him from the suitors on Ithaca, who would do him harm. Hermes made his way to Ogygia, the island of Calypso, and was met with a dismal sight. From his hiding place, the messenger god watched as the beautiful goddess Calypso approached Odysseus on the beach.
5: Come, Odysseus. Don't you agree that you would be much more comfortable in my cabin?
6: For a divinity such as yourself, your ears certainly do not function properly. Leave me to my grief.
5: What could you possibly have to grieve?
6: (laughs) Twenty years. Nearly twenty years have I been denied those that I love. My men are dead. My ships ruined. And now I sit on this sand with only a deaf goddess for company.
5: There are far worse places you could be, you know. Come, join me for dinner. You've warmed yourself in my bed before. Why not again?
6: You seduced me. I was weak and lost, and alone. I've shamed myself and my honorable wife by laying with you.
5: You'd be happier if you weren't so dramatic.
6: I'd be happier left alone.
1: Calypso nodded and walked away from the shore. She was an immortal goddess and was no stranger to waiting. She would pick away at him until he finally gave her what she wanted. They always did. But when she returned to her home, she found Hermes waiting for her. Calypso knew that Odysseus was important to the gods, and she did not have to ask Hermes what he was doing on her island. Generous hostess that she was, she served him food and wine, hoping that such hospitality would turn Hermes away from what he had been sent there to do. But after they had talked and eaten their fill, Hermes carried out his duty. By Zeus's orders, Calypso was to release Odysseus, and send him on his way back home.
5: You're all hypocrites. You know that, Hermes? A god can bed any woman his heart or his body desires. But when we goddesses pursue paramours of our own, we are judged and punished.
1: But Hermes was not interested in what Calypso had to say. He had come bearing orders from Zeus... She was free to defy them, though they both knew that punishment would be swift and permanent if she did. And so, despite the fact that she felt an earnest love for Odysseus, Calypso approached the broken hero on the beach and told him that she was releasing him from her captivity. She gave him fresh clothes and provisions and set about helping him build a raft so that he may finally depart for home. Odysseus, naturally, was suspicious of her sudden change of heart.
6: I promise you now, I won't set foot on any raft you construct unless you swear that you have no ill will in building it.
5: This is naturally not what I wanted. But even I am not foolish enough to stand against Zeus. I swear,
1: I only want to help.
6: Then, I will accept your
1: help. So they worked for four days building the raft. Calypso brought Odysseus into her house and fed him so that he might regain his strength for the journey.
6: I must confess, you have proven yourself to be a generous hostess.
5: Mm, Even a deaf goddess such as I?
6: (laughs) Well, given the circumstances. There are other gods who would have just taken what they wanted by force, regardless of what I wanted. Though you have held me captive here for many years, you always respected my rejections.
5: Well, we're not all brutes.
6: No, but you are all immortal. I am tired, and I long to live the rest of my days in the comfort of my own home.
1: And so, on the fifth day, Odysseus said farewell to the island that had been his prison and set out on the sea. After years of captivity, it was a most hopeful sight to Odysseus to finally brave the open ocean, but his respite would be short-lived. Poseidon had been absent from Greece and was returning to Mount Olympus after a long time away, but the god of the sea was now returning home. To his dismay, he found that Odysseus was out at sea at risk of finally returning home after Poseidon's years of torment. The god of the sea was never one to let go of a grudge, even if his brother, Zeus, had clearly changed his mind about Odysseus's punishment. With his trident in hand, Poseidon conjured a mighty storm, one that made quick work of the scant raft that Odysseus had set out on. The torrential rain and intense winds took control away from the hero, and he was once again left at the mercy of the elements, doomed to be wrecked on whichever island Poseidon decided to deposit him on. As the raft crumbled to pieces, a nymph, Eno, rose from the ocean. She had seen Odysseus's turmoil and felt pity, She granted Odysseus a veil that would prevent him from dying, though the same could not be said for his raft. Poseidon's rage destroyed the raft and left Odysseus adrift on a single plank. The hero swam ahead, protected by the magic of the veil, until he finally reached an unfamiliar shore. Once there, he ventured into the safe cover of the island's inland forest— and, finally, rested. Athena came upon Odysseus while he slept and traveled further inland to see if she may be able to help him. He did not know it yet, but Odysseus had landed on the island Scyria, part of the kingdom of the Phaeacians. Athena appeared before Nausicaa, princess of the Phaeacians, in the form of one of her cousins, and urged her to journey with her handmaidens out to the island's edge. Nausicaa went with her handmaidens to the grotto, as instructed. There, while bathing, they were approached by Odysseus, who was covered in dirt and grime and, most notably, was naked. Nausicaa ordered her servants away and told Odysseus she would give him privacy while he cleaned himself. Odysseus relished in the grotto, wiping the dirt and grime from his skin. As he bathed, Athena cast her godly magic on him, making him even more handsome than he already was. So when Nausicaa beheld him once again, she found herself stricken with desire for the mysterious man who had arrived on her shores. She knew, as a princess, it would not be acceptable for her to arrive back home at her palace in the company of a naked stranger. So she gave him one of her garments to cover himself with, and provided directions on how to reach the palace, and then left his company. Odysseus made the serene walk through the woods toward the palace, alone. Rested and hopeful, he allowed himself to believe that the people on the island would perhaps be able to help him find his way home. Little did he know, despite the long years that he had already spent at sea, Odysseus's journey was far from over, and his home, Ithaca, would prove to be more treacherous than he once remembered. Thanks again for tuning in to Mythology. We'll be back Tuesday with a new episode continuing the story of Odysseus. If you enjoy mythology, you'll love my other podcast, Tales. Tales presents fairy tales the way they were originally told – orally and unadulterated. Traditional fairy tales aren't exactly suitable for children, and every other Saturday we dive into another dark, classic tale. You can find Tales, more episodes of Mythology, and all of Parcast's other shows on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help Mythology. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, at Parcast, and Twitter, at Parcast Network. We'll be back next week with another epic tale. Mythology was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Mythology was written by Colin McLaughlin. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Rebecca Ahrens-Diamond, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Heston Mosier, Steve Pinto, and Jack Shulroof. I'm Vanessa Richardson.